Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. So there was a fascinating article in the, this week's Jewish Journal by Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz, who is, I think he's a rabbi, one of the Orthodox schools in New York, I forgot which one, maybe KJ, and he poses the punchy rhetorical question, is all of rabbinic law a violation of the Torah? Which is a legitimate question, particularly given verses from this morning's Parsha, where God instructs through Moshe that you should not change the words that I'm giving you, yamino small, left or right, meaning you should observe them exactly as they are, which means that the Karaite revolution in the eighth and ninth century CE may have been the most pristine attempt to restore living life according to the Torah uh, as possible, right? And as possible, the Karaites look at rabbinic Judaism, all of us, as uh, heretics, because we took the five books of Moses, we are ancestors, we said, that's a nice start. Some of the words mean exactly what they look like they mean, and some of the words mean the opposite of what they look like they mean, right? And some of these words we feel very, very obligated by, and some of these words, we're, we're gonna say that we're obligated by them, but if you watch what we do, what we don't do, it's gonna be quite clear that we're not at all obligated to them, at least the way they are written in the Torah, right? Um, obviously we are inheritors of the anti-Karai tradition. We are inheritors, everything we do is rabbinic Judaism, right? To quote one of my teachers from JTS, Rabbi Joel Roth, when it comes to determining halakha, I don't give a damn what it says in the Torah. That's what he said with a, with a twinkle in his eye, right? He's one of the most observant, conservative rabbis and halachas. What he's saying is when it comes to determining Jewish law, we don't quote Leviticus. The rabbis use Leviticus as a way of determining um, normative practice, and we are inheritors of that tradition. Sometimes it's possible to see in real time the rabbis reckoning on a meta level with their own obligation to transform Torah into livable law. Because if you go to shul regularly, as opposed to just kind of see the highlights, there's plenty of material in Torah law that you would have a hard time living by, by your ethics, by your conscience, by your sense of morality. Just in this past week's Parsha, where we had the laws of going to war, some of the laws going to war that when you're, um, you know, uh, warring against certain peoples, uh, particularly ones that are close to the land of Israel, you're supposed to show no mercy whatsoever. You're supposed to kill man, woman, and child. So they learn the lesson, they don't bother you again. If you're going to war with people who are farther away, you can be a little bit merciful, only kill all the males. So there are clearly aspects of our revered, beloved tradition, the text that we kiss when it goes around, that we have some, and our ancestors had some issues with. What I wanna to do today is go through some of the most classic material on the rabbis reckoning with, working through, struggling with maybe, some of the most uh, challenging verses in the Torah. And again, we should probably do this much more slowly, but I wanted you to get a taste of it. And the question I want to, I want you to be asking yourself as we're going through is, what are the rabbis doing when we get to the text in the Mishnah? And is there more than one way of understanding what they're doing? Right? Because is it, it might be an obvious thing what they're doing, but it might be a less obvious thing that they're doing as well. What section are we talking about? The section that Barry just read about the Ben Sorer Umoreh, the son who is rebellious and wayward. Here are the verses, four verses from the beginning of Parshat Ki Ki Yele Ish, if a man has, 
Ben, a son, sorer umore, wayward and reckless and rebellious. Einenu shomea bakol aviv does not listen to the voice of his mother or his father. I, I switched that around. His mother, or his father, or his mother. Okay, good question. All right, so I'll hold on to that question because the vav can be an and or an or. Viasruoto, they wag their fingers at him. They try to bring him in line. Below yishma elihem, he does not listen to them. Okay, so in one verse, you're 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 seeing a story that maybe you know quite well if you've ever tried to raise a child. Already by verse two of this section, we are in action mode. They shall take him, his mother and his father, the Hotsiuoto, bring him out, El Zignayiro, to the elders of his city, the El Sharmakamo, to the gate of where they are where they are living, the Amru, and they say publicly, El Zignayiro, to those elders, this son, so rare umore. He is wayward and he is rebellious. He does not listen to our voices. Zolel, he is a drunkard, and a glutton, or vice versa. What's that? Uh, good question, right? So in, 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 in verse 20, they're giving testimony to aspects of his waywardness that were not present in verse 18. But we're only three verses into the section, so it's still developing the, the picture. All of the men of his town stone him with stones, and he dies. This is capital punishment. This seems to be a cause and effect here. And sort of, and by doing so, you will root out the evil in your midst. The whole Israel, and after living in a society where this is what they do to their wayward son, I'm interpolating here, all of Israel, Yishmu, they will learn to listen, the Yura'u, and have awe. You better believe it. Okay, right? Listen, we could spend an hour discussing our reaction to these verses. We could spend an hour asking the kinds of questions that Barry and Alan asked, which is like, why is this letter here, and why is this added here? Is there any questions to what this verse is asking us to do? Right? If, if you're living in a realm where holy writ is transmitted to you from the divine, right? Leave the corners of your field for the poor. Don't work on Shabbat. Don't eat, uh, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. Stone your child who does not listen to you. There's no winking in this verse. There's no irony. There certainly doesn't seem to be any like, like self-aware irony. Right? There's no sense when this verse introduced saying, hey, we're going to lay in these verses to the same trump as the other verses, but we all know we don't really mean it. When you're reading through Parshat Varim, there's no indication that we should be reading this verse, these verses with any less earnestness, any less an expectation that we're supposed to act on it than the other verses. Okay? And that seems clear. It's hard to find a biblical scholar who, who, who reads that any differently, except that the sages, I would say, blessedly read it very, 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 very differently, okay? And so the eighth chapter of Mishnah Sanhedrin, I'm only giving you four of the eight or nine halachot here, is one of the most interesting, and some people consider it controversial, and some people consider it the most inspiring sections of rabbinic literature, right? Why, it's interesting for obvious reasons. It's controversial because you see the rabbis really doing surgery on biblical texts with what authority? Or inspiring, you see the rabbi saying, 
listen, obviously we want to be Torah observant Jews, but obviously we're not committing infanticide. So how are we going to get from A to B? Okay. So we're going to just go through uh, some of the, some of these Mishnayot. There's a lot more material in this chapter than this one, than the ones I'm going to give to you. Okay. And Mishnah Sanhedrin, uh, Sanhedrin is 10 chapters dealing with jurisprudence and uh, issues related to judges and courts and witnesses. And all of a sudden, because the Mishnah is an associative text and it, and it jumps around, you get to the eighth chapter of Sanhedrin and with no warning, there's no, the last Mishnah of chapter seven does not suggest that this is what's coming next. All of a sudden we see the rabbis uh, or a record of the rabbis dealing with the Ben Sorer Moreh. Okay. Ben Sorer Moreh. So first, the phrase, this wayward and rebellious child, from when? And this is not a question of like what time of day, but at what point? What, is, what, is the, what, are, what are the boundaries that define when a child could, be, could get this moniker and such be subject to the death penalty? From the moment when he brings two hairs until he rounds off his beard. The rabbi said, this is lower hair, not upper hair. Ella, rather, but our sages spoke with euphemistic language. So when the rabbis here talk about two hairs and a beard, they're not talking about facial hair, okay? They're talking about pubic hair, but they don't want to speak about that they want to speak about speaking about that, but not speak about that. So when you always talk about bringing two hairs, it's an indication of, uh, of puberty. And so what's been, what's been done here? So how, how long do we think that is? Right? That's a very narrow period of time from the time that two hairs are visible to when more hair is visible. And how do the rabbis read that out of the verses? And the question here, are they reading this organically or is this ex post facto they're trying to find a hook in the verse for this narrowing. Because the Torah says, it's when you have a son. Ben So first of all, it says son, so it doesn't mean daughter. Sometimes we get upset when the Torah mentions just a male and excludes a female. Sometimes it helps. Ben It also doesn't say a man. It's a child. So it's not a man. But hakatan patur. If you were really a child, he's exempt. A katan is not obligated to mitzvot. Shalom Balichlal Mitzvot is not obligated. So we've got to find the category where it's a male, it's not an adult, it's not a child. Oh, for that, for those four days, right? Or for those two weeks in between the absolute the onset of puberty and a sense when it's actually much more visible. Barry, you're gonna say something? Um, Barry, I wanna have pass the microphone around because there are people on Zoom. It's okay. Uh, I, I got the sense that the hair is in two different locations. Uh, there, there, there's a two pubic hairs until the time that the lower part of the face is long enough that he can round it. Um, so that, that's not a couple of days. I think it's a bit like five years. Except that the mission is pretty clear that when it talks about the lower beard, it means the, the pubic hair, because otherwise they wouldn't have said, and after all, the rabbi spoke in euphemistic language, because there'd be no reason to speak, refer to this as the lower beard euphemistically. It just is what it is. The, the rounding the beard. What's that? R rounding the beard. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I it, it's, it's a, it's, it's accepted interpretation of the mission that we're talking about lower hairs, but I, I suppose it's, it's possible to read it differently. However, we read it, it's extremely narrow. Okay. So the first thing we've done is narrow it down in terms of time, right? You can't be, you might be rebellious, 
but if you if you only have brought one hair, you're not subject to the penalty. And if you're already here suit, you're not subject to the penalty. Okay. Mishnah two. Now we have another from when is this person liable? Until you eat an enormous amount of meat. I'm thinking of when I used to eat meat and there was like there was a there was a restaurant on Mekrafaim and Jerusalem called Norman's Norman Norman's Norm's burger. And if you could eat that big kahuna burger, which is like I don't know, two kilo hamburger, then you're you're you could get your name on the wall. And then your present was another one, right? So um, I got my name on the wall, but I declined the, the other one. But I think tartemar of basar is more than that. So some enormous amount of meat. And you also, he also drinks a half log. It's a lot of wine and not just any wine, Italian wine, which is very strong and very expensive. Okay. Where do the rabbis see that in the verse? The verses say nothing about that, but that's what the rabbis are determining. Rabbi Yossi Omer, mane basar even more than that, right? Not forget this chatzilog. You know, he might be someone you want to discipline if before that, but it's not until he drinks an entire log of yayin and has a mane of basar that he's obligated. Achal b'chavurat mitzvah. Let's say he ate this amount and he was in that one week period where he's liable, but he was doing it as part of like a mitzvah group, like they were out celebrating some holiday. This is now going to be a string of ifs. Or, he was at a party to celebrate the fact that there's a new Adar. How come we don't have a party when we are when a second Adar is coming? But remember back then, they didn't have hebcal.com. They couldn't look into the future. They were determining in real time, is this a month when we're intercalating the year? It's a great, it's a great word, Ibor HaChodesh. Ibor from the word meaning pregnant. And Ubar is a fetus. Because it was a, a pregnant year because the year had a bump. So if he was eating it in that situation, or there is a second tithe that in certain years in the Shemitah year cycle, you were supposed to, um, a, a, a second tenth off of the tenth that had been taken off, and it was supposed to be taken to Jerusalem and eaten there with celebration, or if it was too much for you to schlep your oranges or your potatoes or whatever to Jerusalem, you would convert that prados into coins, take the coins with you, you would go to Jerusalem, you eat it there. Some people believe that the, the reason why this was set up is so that Jerusalem would actually have an active economy and also that people would have more of a reason to be going and making a pilgrimage there. So if this kid, aged 12 in a day and 12 in two weeks, ate that much of wine and that much meat, but he was doing it because he was in Jerusalem celebrating the second tithe, or or if he was eating treif, right? He, he had this amount but it was the two different kinds of trafe, right? The animals that was, um, that, that was found to have a, a blemish once killed or an animal that died uh, of, a, of natural causes out in the field. Or or the meat that he was eating were creepy crawlies or snakes, yuck. Or he ate produce that had not been tithed. Or he ate from the first tithe from which the, its own tithe had not been taken. Or two other categories of food that is supposed to be eaten in a certain sanctified way. If he was eating it to fulfill a particular mitzvah, or if he was eating it to violate a particular mitzvah. Let's eat all this amount of food in the right situations, but it wasn't flesh. Or he drank that amount of intoxicant 
in that one week during his life that he was obligated, and it wasn't any of these other situations. But it wasn't wine. He is not called, considered, a ben such that he's subject to the punishment. Until the point that he eats meat and drinks wine in these circumstances, they bring a proof text. I say proof text here because normally a proof text proves something. Sometimes, sometimes, all the time, the rabbis bring uh, quotations from verses, and when you read the verse, like, oh, that's why they're saying that, because that's a good proof text. Their proof text here are the two words that Barry asked about, because the verse says in the third of the five verses that we read that our son is zolel and sove. Now, it's barely a proof text, because we don't even know what those words mean. Those are near um, hapaxlegamina in the Torah, in that the words appear almost only here and nowhere else. So you, we only know them from context. It's not like you read the word sove, like, oh, I know what sove means. Sove means someone who drinks this much Italian wine in this situation. No. So it's a proof text, but an extremely convenient proof text that is maybe convinced themselves and we're happy that they wrote these laws there, but it's not really an obvious proof text that makes you say, oh, of course, that's why they're saying that. Yes, Irv, let's give Irv the mic. Let's keep the switch on. Completely different take. It's really it, what I heard it. It was it was the broken windows theory. You got to stop bad behavior before it starts. So they're making an example of an extreme case because the real impact is the impact on the community of having kids kind of go do what they want to do. You know, there. Yeah. So that's oh. kind of why I'm looking at at, it, at more. It's, it's really to impact the rest of the community. So making an extreme example, saying we're going to really really bear down on one person rather than let him get away with it so everyone else could then follow and get away with it. Right, good. There, there's an act of tension here. The, the easiest thing is to look at the verses Dvarim and say, oh, this is just crazy. This is fundamentalism. This is Wahhabism. This is Saudi Arabia. And, 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 and our morals are, 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 more, um, are, are more refined than that. And we, we don't have to pay attention to these verses, right? It would also be easy. It would be horrific, but it would be easy to say, this is what the verses tell me to do. I suppose that's what I should do. Right? The verses tell me to sacrifice my son. Or the verse tells me to not sacrifice my son, but to circumcise my son. I, I, I haven't interpreted that out of reality. Uh, I do it. I don't know why. It feels weird when I'm doing it, but I do it. So, so both of those would be easy ways of reading the verses. More challenging is what you're bringing up, Herb, is that the verses were about a real societal phenomenon about a societal phenomenon, as we'll see in a second, has been real throughout all of history and is still real on some level. And that is how does a family and a society raise menches, put boundaries in so that the values are transmitted, don't terrorize a society by um, punishments and incarcerations that push against our sense of morality, but don't permit anything and everything. Because when you permit anything and everything, society doesn't look so good. And cities don't look so good. Deb, just keep it on. All right. So um, two things. Deb. One is Deb. There, there's, yeah, I know. It's, I feel really weird. I know, but they can't hear you unless it's okay. up there. Okay. Um, there's a lot of things that the community is supposed to stone people for, right? In the Torah, right? Like, I don't know all of them, but right? This isn't a unique punishment per se. So I think we have an extra sensitivity, obviously, towards kid, teenage, well, 
I mean, the thing with the puberty, I don't think it really matters where, if it's facial hair or pubic hair, but it's like puberty, onset of puberty. It goes for some years and the hormones are raging and kids are crazy then. So I see it as like a warning to parents. And honestly, it is shocking the punishment, but I see it more as like a warning and the gluttonous, uh, whatever, the gluttonous drinking thing is like, is like, okay, this is what you really want to be careful your kids don't do. Yeah. Is like drink a lot and, you know, oh, whatever. Like, that's just kind of the way I'm interpreting it. Absolutely. And, so, and, uh, and the question that I want us to be thinking about as we're reading through this, and we're going to read one more mission, we don't have time to read two more, is what's in the mind of the rabbis who are authoring these Mishnayot? The authorship of the Torah will always be shrouded in beautiful mystery, right? We, we just don't know, right? So our faith tells us that it comes from God to Moshe at Mount Sinai. And scholarship tells us it's much more complicated than that. And that will be unresolvable until the end of time. The Mishnah is not a, not a mystery. There were rabbis sitting in rooms in, in uh, Tzipori, in the, in, the, in the Galil, and in Yavna near Tel Aviv, and they were writing these laws down, and they were real human beings, and we know their names, and, and what were they thinking? And what did they think they were doing? And did they think they were involved in something chutzpahdik, righteously chutzpahdik, or did they think they were just kind of following the rules of hermeneutics of biblical interpretation? And this is what came out. Let's read one more, and then I'll and I'll ask you to answer that question. What do you think they think they were doing? The next Mishnah, further limiting. Ganav Mishal Aviv, v'yachal bershut Aviv. Let's say he stole something that his father owned, and he ate on his father's property. Or Michel Acherim or he stole other people's property and he ate it on their property. Or Michel Acherim or he stole other people's stuff and ate it in his father's property. In all those situations, uh-uh, na He's not considered a rebellious child such that he's liable to the punishment. Ad she ignov Michel Aviv until the thing that he steals belonged to his father. But he eats it in other people's property. Why? Rabbi Yossi bar Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Ad she ignob Michel Aviv u Michel Imo. Not, not a why. Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi bar Rabbi Yehuda adds on an even greater limitation. He doesn't become obligated to this terrible punishment until he steals that which belonged both to his mother and to his father and then eats it in the property of others. Okay. The, the, the chapter goes on, right? So we've, we've, we've got a law that seemed pretty broad. A rebellious child who is eating and drinking his way through adolescence, stone him, right? It sounds almost Monty Python-ish. Stone him, stone him, right? <laughs> Already in three Mishnaic verses, or Mishnaic uh, texts, the, 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 um, the, the range that someone would have to fall into in order to be liable to the punishment is extremely narrow, narrow to the point of impossible, right? What do you think the rabbis thought they were doing? What was their mindset? Hannah? They were trying to make it impossible to kill your son. <laughs> they didn't want that. Say it one more time in the microphone. Oh, they, they didn't want uh, the sons to die. They didn't want that. Okay. And so they looked carefully at the text and then figured out ways to get around this terrible decree in Deuteronomy. Yeah. So one view is, and we like this view, 
we are liberated by this view. We are we modern progressive Jewish movements are inspired. We we are given validation by this view. The rabbis looked at verses of the Torah that they could not countenance. They said to the Torah, "We were listening carefully, Torah, when you outlawed child sacrifice. We listened carefully when you told us that we're supposed to value all life. So we think we know you better than you know you, and you're giving us these verses, and we're saying." Yeah, like we, we, we can't sharpie the verses out. We can't say, uh, instead of there being 613 mitzvot in the Torah, there's 612, but we can use all of our interpretive skill to make sure that this situation will never be put into practice. And now either that the, the Karaites looked back at this chapter and mission said, what were you doing? This is, this is heresy. This is blasphemy. This is saying, you know the Torah better than the Torah knows the Torah. And we say, thank goodness, there was a thrust in rabbinic literature to look at aspects of the text that are problematic, say, we can do something with this. And we can do something without crossing it out. Right? And you probably each can think of a verse right now that when you read it in the Torah, you cringe. And because you're a member of a traditional conservative synagogue, we don't not read verses from the Torah. We don't not read hard verse in the Torah, whether it has to do with the, uh, issues with children or other things, because we're descendants of a tradition that reckoned with, dealt with, did not um, throw out, but found a way to narrow the negative impact of some of this material. Warren? Okay, so, okay, the way, to me, the interesting question is not so much, I mean, I understand, obviously, the rabbis never wanted to have this uh, law enforced. Uh, to me, the interesting question is, why is it there in the Torah in the first place? Yes. And um, I think it's, uh, and it's suggested, I think, in the last writings that you have here, that it is a lesson, and maybe more metaphorical, of the seriousness of uh, children who are wayward, and and the effect that that has on um, the community and the future, and that uh, it is so serious that it that that uh, metaphorically the 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 uh, child should be stoned. Yeah. Okay, so maybe not. Maybe it doesn't mean that the child should literally be stoned, but maybe that the child should literally be um, uh, sa uh, saved, so to speak. You know that there should be salvation for that child. Yeah. And, and, and redemption. Right. And that's what this is about. Right. So maybe it means, so it either means that the child shouldn't literally be stoned, or it means that the child should literally be stoned. And then the rabbi's interpretation of it, such that it never actually came into, into practice, was an act of righteous chutzpah. And scholars to this day debate this, right? Um, a few months ago, you may have heard the news, uh, the, the greatest living Talmudist alive, Rabbi David Weiss of Livni, who I speak about all the time from the pulpit, who uh, was a professor at JTS and then at Columbia, and, and a, a, a mind who knew the Talmud on a level that we can't even fathom. Um, he had a famous article, I forgot in what, what scholarly um, collection in the 1980s, basically pushing against the way you and I are all instinctively reading these verses. And I bring this with reverence, even though I... I, I want to disagree with him, although it's chutzpah for me to say that I would I could disagree with someone with, with such a sage. But it's hard for me to imagine that what he 
said was happening in these, in these chapters actually were, although he knew about a billion times more about rabbinic literature than I'll ever know. He could not countenance the rabbis not countenancing verses from the Torah. Meaning he couldn't imagine a rabbi sitting, creating the Mishnah, looking at the Torah, looking askance at the Torah and saying, gotta figure out a way to make these verses not applicable. He, he couldn't live a life imagining that the rabbis whom he revered were actually critiquing the Torah by eliminating its application. What he believed was going on, and maybe he's right, is that the rabbis created and inherited a list of, uh, um, a list of methodological principles by which verses of the Torah are interpreted. And it's kind of like an algorithm and you apply those principles to verses and pff, what comes out is waiting three hours between meat and milk. And what comes out is this is the size of a sukkah. And what comes out is, you know, this is the way the Megillah should be read. And what comes out is, oh, I know it looks like we're supposed to stone him. And we are supposed to stone him, but only these very, 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 very narrow circumstances. Far be it from us, Halivni would say, that we're intentionally trying to do it. Had we applied the methodology and it came out that we're supposed to uh, uh, stone our children in all these circumstances, we would have done it because we're God and Torah-fearing people. But that's not what the rules suggest. I have an admiration for someone with that amount of faith towards the tradition but I struggle with imagining that the rabbis are doing anything other than righteously challenging their revered text without cutting some of it and throwing it in the trash. Tom? Um, my question is, with, um, given that argument you, from, uh, that you just made, what, those are all, but it's always based on proof text. And as you said, these are not, it doesn't make sense. They're, they don't seem to be following the way they usually do things here. They seem right. to be just sort of making it up. And, right. and the proof text, that, as you said, they give, it's, it's not a proof text. But I, don't, I don't remember the specific arguments read by Liberty Marshalls to make his argument. I read this article a long time ago, and it was a, a core article for us to study at JTS because it, 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 it was something to, to, to reckon with how we imagine our power, our authority as interpreters of the tradition. Can we also look at verses from Leviticus and say, yeah, like it did mean that, but it actually meant a very, 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 very narrow version of that. And, and that's what we're going to maintain as a prohibition. And so um, Rabbi Halivni uh, is generally someone who would have said, no, rabbis do not really have that power to consciously change the law. All they have the power to do is to interpret the tradition according to its rules. But I don't remember which rules he said they were individually following when he made this argument. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a famous argument that he made and kind of an argument in defense of a non, you know, what, what, what's the accusation that is sometimes levied at certain members of the Supreme Court, a pro, um, either activist. A, an activist court versus a cons uh, originalist, right? Halivni would say, I'm an originalist when it comes to the Torah, and I believe that the rabbis are originalists, and I don't want to see Rabbi Akiva as an activist. Because if Rabbi Akiva was an activist, then I can arrogate to myself as an inheritor of Rabbi Akiva that I can also be an activist, so I can say, well, in September 2022, this law is all of a sudden not sitting well with me. Well, I can just, you know, Rubik's cube it out of, out of he didn't want that to be a present tense in, in, religious, in religious law. Cheva? I don't know if you all met Sheva. Sheva is one of our new rabbinic uh, residents this year. She is a fifth-year student at HUC. You can applaud. Uh, and uh, will be with us all year uh, studying and learning, and I hope you'll learn a lot from her. Sheva. 
Thank you. Um, so what's not sitting well with me here, I, I understand that they're narrowing the scope of what wayward and defiant would be, but why are they not narrowing the scope of urgamuhu kolen she'yorova avanim vamet? And and are there other examples where stoning in the square and die, like, you know, could we say, oh, we only stone him with pebbles and met is a spiritual death, you know, like, like, are there other ways in which that could be narrowed in scope? Because that's also like a much more common thing that we encounter in Torah than Ben Sarah yeah, fascinating. You're right. The, the rabbis are applying their scissors to the definition of the category, not the definition of the stoning. Um, I have to, I don't remember if at the end of the chapter, I have to look back, if they spend any time talking about the, the you know, if the person fit into that category, is there some way that we're going to play with the verses of the stoning that limits it? I don't think that they are. Um, I don't know. May, maybe the rabbis believe that they could, they could preserve the, the notion of the punishment and, and sleep well at night knowing that they have made it impossible to carry out? I don't know. Uh, Alan? Two things. First, with respect to the death penalty itself, the rabbis go out of their way to put all sorts of restrictions for death right. penalties for murder, for Correct. everything else. They have to have two witnesses be warned. That right, and a Sanhedrin that killed one person in 70 years was considered a bloody Sanhedrin. Yeah, and if, and if or it could be every 70 years, and if it was like Rabbi Akiva and one other, they would never put anyone to death. Right. Right. And it's just so, it's not just here that this is going on. And the rabbis themselves knew that some of the, the rules that they were announcing were tenuous. They said that, and we had this discussion, that, that all of the rules of Kashrut are like a mountain being, supposed, being supported by, a hu by one human hair. And if you think about all the laws about milk and upper, meat. Upper hair. Upper hair, that's right. <laughs> upper hair. All the laws about milk and meat are based on the one line, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. It's, you know, there's an old joke about that, may yes. I? It, it, yeah. Please. This is, this is so, Moses, you know, is born for God, and Moses, and God says, And Moses says, oh, you mean that we have to have separate dishes for milk and meat? God says, And Moses says, Oh, you mean we have to wait six hours after or three hours, whatever we have to have after we have meat before we have milk? God says, Al Tivashel Gidi Himo. And Moses says, Oh, you mean for Passover we have to have separate dishes for milk and meat? And God says, All right, have it your way. <laughs> Just so you know, Alan's starting the Temple Beth Am chapter in favor of chicken parmesan. That will be uh, <laughs> yes, that will be I, I'm soon. a Rashi fan. Um, switch to uh, page four. I know it's not number, but the second, the, the back of the second page. This is a little a piece of Gemara of rabbinic interpretation on the Mishnah. So the Mishnah, the text that we're reading before, are somewhere between you know fifty and two hundred CE, and now the Gemara uh, representing material from centuries after that. Except that sometimes in the Gemara we're quoting other material from the age of the Mishnah that just wasn't included in the Mishnah. And this is also in Tractate Sanhedrin. Keman Azlahadatanya. Who do we think the following text agrees with? This is a common uh, way of Talmudic argument. We find like this text hanging out there. We want to make sure that we can attribute or associate that text with one of the authors of the positions that we've been dealing with. Ben Sorer Umore Lo Hayav Lo Atid Liot. 
there is a, a, a piece of Mishnaic material. The fact that it says Datanya, it means it comes from the era of the Mishnah, but it wasn't included in the Mishnah. Some rabbi said that rebellious child, halachically speaking, never was, lo haya, lo liyot, and never will be. By the way, um, I don't know if this is coincidence or not. There is a Yiddish expression that I remember learning when I took Yiddish at Columbia that basically applies this never was and never will be, not to a rebellious child, but to Jesus. It was a common uh, like, you know, thing to throw out in, in Ashkenazi Judaism that when someone would mention Jesus, they would say in Yiddish, I forgot how to say it, never was and never will be, right? Like, like, like it's all a myth, right? But here the rabbis um, are applying that to the category of the rebellious child. It never happened. The Lama Nichtav. Well, if that's the case, if this was never put into practice, why was it even written? Drosh v'kabel schar. It's, it, it's there for a reason not to build your society around this rule, but so you should study it. And by studying it, you'll have some illumination, which I hope you're all experiencing today, and you'll receive reward. That line, Drosh v'kabel schar, was famously a significant part of the tshuva that Rabbi Gordon Tucker wrote when the concerted movement was approaching again the status of uh, gays and lesbians um, in the Jewish in the Jewish community, and he basically applied that concept to those verses in Leviticus. Well, if the verses in Leviticus were not meant to absolutely prohibit sexual contact and romantic relationships between people of the same gender, then why are they there? Rabbi Gordon Tucker said, "Drosh v'kabelschar." They're there for us to reckon with and study and get and and be rewarded for having toiled in the material, but not for us to live them out directly speaking, and he would say, the rabbis gave us a good template for that. Come on, who is this like? Who could, the, who could be the author of this? It could be Rabbi Yehuda. If you want to say, Rabbi Shimon Hayatanya, it could be like the following text from Rabbi Shimon. Amar Rabbi Shimon. Shimon said, Basically, Rabbi Shimon said directly what we're inferring from the Mishnaic verses. Is it really possible that because he ate some some meat and drank some wine that his parents should stone him? He's actually asking the question we're asking. Could that possibly be what God wants? Actually, it was never actually, never meant to be and never happened. And why was it written? Right? So maybe this anonymous position is really Rabbi Shimon who it had incredulity when he came to those verses. He's sitting in shul, Parshaki Tate, and he says, what? We're not supposed to be acting this out. We're supposed to be studying it and, 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 and receive some wisdom from it. And what's the wisdom? We'll get that in a second. But then this one fascinating line that is not upheld in any other place in the Talmud. Amar Rabbi Yonatan, ani ra'itiv, yeshavti al-kivro. Rabbi Yonatan says, you think it never happened? I was witness to it once. And I sat on the grave of the one who had been killed. How, how to assess the historicity of this one line by Rabbi Yonatan, I don't know. Is he basically saying back to Rabbi Shimon, don't be so cavalier about getting rid of Torah laws? Is he saying, in my village in the Galil, they did it, and I sat on his grave. And is he saying he sat in his grave sort of triumphantly, like, like yeah, it was supposed to be done and did it? Or is he saying with a sense of heaviness that I... I was witness to it, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I sat on the grave of this child who was killed for this reason. Irv? Well, you say wayward. It could be that a kid, kid killed somebody, right? Yeah. 
It could be like not just, you know, he was drunk and, and didn't listen to his parents. Or, or could become someone who would. Or, right? like or, or, or went into a school and shot up 19 kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that never would happen these days. Right. Marshall? Well, you, Rabbi, you said that the words Zolelva uh, Sauve are problematic. I honestly don't understand what so rare morem means. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is what is so rare? Like sur means to turn. Right. Morem is like instruction. Right. Well, I want to clarify it a little bit more. Okay. He doesn't listen to the voice of his father or his mother. Oh, you still don't get me? Okay. Now, finally, he's so rare morem. He doesn't listen to his mother and father. Finally, he's also Zolelva Sauve. Yeah. There are three levels here. Right. And, and the four adjectival verbs that describe this person that you would think you'd want to understand with specificity if you're going to commit capital punishment are words that are very hard to make sense of even if you know biblical hebrew well Tom, was your hand up so uh, maybe the the point is that it wasn't they weren't really legislating it so that it would absolutely never happen that there was a person who had exactly that amount of hair and who drank that amount of italian wine like that that existed in the world right that that's not what they were doing. They weren't saying the Torah isn't valid. They were saying it is. It's just almost never happened, but one time it did. Right. So you could read Rabbi Yonatan as kind of a a defense of the rabbinic material, lest you think that the rabbis were truly jettisoning the law. They were narrowing it, but I'm I'm I can give you proof that those verses of the Torah still have applicability because I was witness to it. Now, last little text, and then we're going to um, finish off. So the commentary of the Maharsha, by Shmuel Idols, who has a running commentary on the Agadic, the narrative, and the halachic material in the Talmud. Uh, so he's living, you know, 1,500 years after the Mishnah. And this is going to go back to something that Herb was saying before. So, so it's been a millennium and a half since the rabbis basically darshaned these verses out of existence. In our times, we pay no attention to gluttonous and defiant sons, and everybody covers up the sins of his children, even when they might be liable to flogging or to capital, capital punishment under the law. They are not even reprimanded. Many such children are leading purposeless lives and learn nothing, and we know that Jerusalem was destroyed because children loafed around and did not study. What I find fascinating about the commentary of the Maharsha I don't think he's saying we should be executing our children. I think he is saying, be careful with how careless you're willing to be about ancient verses that struck a terrible chord in our heart when it came to the application of the law, but was dealing with a problem in society that we're still dealing with. And we're still dealing with it 250 years after this. And I don't score us an A on this. And I'm not, I'm not um, um, reprimanding any individual person, including myself. But I certainly don't score society an A in how to figure out how to keep children away from uh, not living lives of, of menschlichkeit and not becoming so far off the grid that they uh, wreak havoc in society. It's still happening. It's happening probably even worse. What would happen if the Constitution right, had a, had a provision for when a child's behavior gets so far out right, that they're, they're no longer can live among society. There are, you know, there are, uh, are lawyers and sages on all sides of this in terms of the horrific notion of adolescent incarceration and certainly someone whose brain is still developing, who commits a terrible crime at age 15 and might be in prison for life. There's parts of our conscience that, that bristles of that. 
And there's parts of us that recognize that if they're not serious consequences in place, right, evil is going to find its way to manifest itself. So we have not solved, because we never will be able to, what those verses originally meant. We have not solved, because we've never been able to, what the rabbis were actually doing when they came to those verses. And we have not solved how to, how to fix the societal problem that those verses were trying to fix. But hopefully we've studied and from the heavenly abode will receive reward. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.